from Second Chronicles, chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. It happened after, that, after this that the people of Moab, with the people of Ammon, and others with them besides the Ammonites, came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hazazon, Tamar, which is En Gedi. And Jeho- Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven, and do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you. Are you not our God, who drove out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel, and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And they dwell in it, and you have built and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple, and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Thank you, Tracy. You know, as I was uh, preparing, I realized what is obvious, and that is each one of us has a little corner in life that is sort of like the uh, bindweed. Do you know what bindweed is? You know, you, uh, you dig them up, and you dig them up, and you go real deep with them, and you're convinced that you have um, gotten rid of the bindweed, but lo and behold, uh, at some point, pretty quickly, you see that the pesky weed returns. And... Uh, Confession time. My one of my bindweeds is uh, tardiness. Um, I like to excuse it by saying that this is part of the family genes. But uh, uh, my wife was very punctual. Just doesn't seem to uh, accept that. Uh, in any event, my basic mo to uh, these uh, personal bindweeds is to <coughs> pound on the Lord's door and say, Lord, this is a problem. Um, you're the God of order, and I tend to operate in chaos. So, uh, would you please do something? You know, parting the Red Sea, something mild like that, and uh, bring about basic transformation, which, by the way, I... I pray for all of us. That's my expectation is that um, if, I should say rather since God is here, right? That he, each time we meet and as we worship him, as we share the word, he will talk to us. And if he talks to us, that there will be a change take place in our life. And so that's my expectation for all of us for me included, and so, you know, gradually, God has been at work, Um, and uh, so this week, um, I had a personal visitation, as it were, from the Almighty in this area, I had an appointment with one of our guys, (coughs) and uh, of course, I didn't allow enough time, and and I look at, at my little calendar, and uh, 
realize that I'm going to be late. And so my temptation was to <coughs> mutter a few words that are not in the Bible and, uh, <coughs> and shift into fight and flight syndrome. You know what that is, you know, where you're palms get sweaty and your heart starts to pound and you start to breathe and your mind shifts from some degree of logic into complete irrationality and uh, and I tend to be a lead foot to begin with since I am a New York driver <laughs> and uh, you know I've, I've also had conversations with the Almighty on that um, but, you know, for some reason, I just had peace in that nanosecond, and I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you to bring me there on time, because this, this appointment is really your, your appointment, something that I believe you set up, so you've got good plans, and um, I'm depending on you to somehow bring me there on time. And, you know, it's not as if I expected um, some sort of a, uh, a specialized car to lift me up and bring me there. But, you know, the odd thing was um, I had every single light green, and I came on time. And I said, okay, Lord, um, I get it. I get it. You know, you are able to work in my life, even in this particular area. Now, folks, I real I, I'm not self-consumed. I realize that the Almighty has bigger issues, such as protecting his people in the Middle East. But at least for me, this was a statement uh, to reinforce the fact that when things happen, I don't need to shift to fight-or-flight syndrome. You know, I, and I think this is something that for all of us takes place at one time or another. Uh, we get hyper. You know, something pushes our buttons and it's like uh, we shift into illogic and unspiritual and all of that rolled up in one. And um, what, what that said to me simply is that God Almighty is able to bring about His shalom to our lives in the midst of situations that seem to be chaotic and distressing. In the small things and also in the big things. And um, the example that we're, we're seeing here, that Tracy read to us, obviously, is not about being late. This is a massive, uh, a massive crisis, national crisis. Um, here you have the people of Judah being vulnerable to being massacred and looted by this massive combination of people who came from across the Jordan River. And of course, it was also a, very much a personal crisis uh, for Jehoshaphat. Because as the king, he had the responsibility for the welfare of all his people. And it was also a personal crisis of faith for him that basically challenged him with the simple question, am I going to trust God in this situation? Or am I going to freak and shift into the flesh and try to figure things out? You know, the reality is it's perfectly normal, normal, um, whatever that is, to try and find logical ways to address a looming crisis. And the basic problem with that is that when we do that, we typically tend to ignore God's sovereign control. It's as if we say, okay, there is a problem, and by golly, I'm going to be the one who is going to fix it. Because, God, you're somewhere over here, and either you're not interested, you don't have the power, you don't care, you've got bigger things, and, and that is our expectation, 
our wrong thinking, ignoring the fact that God is continually at work in our life. Do you know that? Do you know that God is continually at work in your life? Somehow, you know, Scripture refers to that as he is the potter that is at work to shape, to shape the pot. And he uses all kinds of difficult circumstances to do some of his best work. And of course, what we do when we're in a difficult situation is we tend to say, and furthermore, and um, basically feel like it's an absolute and utter waste of time that, that we're having difficulty. And if we're really, truly spiritual, then we say something like, God, help! That's, that's profound. Um, sometimes that's the best we can do. However, part of reality as God is at work in our life is to bring us to a point of understanding who He is and the fact that He's got all kinds of power. And that He is invested in our life that he takes his power and invests his power in our life. Now again, this is not self-centered and, and narcissistic that uh, we view ourselves as the only ones that people care about. Of course not. But somehow, and, and it's been said, that the mighty Amazon waters brings water to one water lily at a time. God somehow finds a way to um, pour out his love on each of us individually. And this is what we're seeing here. Now, we don't have all the details. We're not given the videos here, as it were. We're given broad brushstrokes. Um, just to go over some of that, here you have um, a vast army, probably hundreds of thousands, um, coming, um, crossing, having crossed the Jordan River, coming, and it's a scripture gives us a little, a little nuance to suggest that this is a personal attack against Jehoshaphat. They're not just coming against Judah; they're specifically coming to attack Jehoshaphat. We'll talk about that in a minute. At this point, they are fifty-three miles from Jerusalem. Now. Today, that's only an hour and 16 minutes by car. For them, it would have been two or three days uh, for the huge army to travel. So Jehoshaphat had a little bit of breathing room. And the truth is, we're really not sure why they came against them. Uh, we do know several things. One is that warfare was going on between one nation after another for all kinds of reasons. Um, as you read the historical books in Scripture, you'll see continual warfare with a few exceptions. Um, some of that was territorial gains. You know, I'm, I'm jealous of what you have, just like today. Um, and people were jealous of the fact that Jehoshaphat... Uh, was, had become a wealthy man. God had given him all kinds of honor and, um, and wealth. And uh, in fact, Scripture says again and again, if you go back uh, to the earlier chapters, chapter 17, um, looks like someone is trying to get someone's attention by vibrating phone here. Um, so perhaps part of the reason they wanted to, to come and attack Jehoshaphat is to plunder some of the wealth. Um, now, th the obvious question is that you want to ask, um, why did that happen? You know, inquiring minds want to know. Um, why, did why did that happen? Well, the obvious conclusion is God is in control. God is either allowing or directly motivating these people to come because of judgment. We're really not sure. 
But what we do know about Jehoshaphat is that he was one godly king. Let me just read to you a couple of statements uh, from chapter 17. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because in his early days he walked the ways of his father David. This is 17, um, 2 Chronicles 17, 3. Um, Jehoshaphat sought the, the, the God of his father and followed his commandments rather than practices of Israel. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Uh, also, this is 17.7, in the third year of his reign, he sent five of his officials to teach in the towns of Judah. With them were nine Levites and two priests. They taught throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the Torah of the Lord. They went around to all the towns of Judah and taught the people. Now, I don't know about you, I certainly can't uh, conceive of our government federal, state, or local um, sending representatives to all parts of the country or the, or the state um, to see to it that they're instructed in God's ways. Um, and remember that Jehoshaphat is relatively young. He is 28 years old. Um, and, and we see that for the most part of his life, this was a guy who, wanted, who was zealous for God. But you know what happens to all of us? And the book of Deuteronomy warns us and says, if or as God prospers you and gives you the things that you need, don't get fat and sassy. And this is a translation here. Um... Don't forget about the Lord your God. Don't come to, to uh, a perspective where, where, you, where God gradually gets squeezed out of the picture and instead you're the one who fills the screen. And that happens and it's a real danger, folks. It's a real danger for all of us regardless of how zealous and spiritually mature and committed to, to serving God we are. We all can get that way um, and get to a point where we are stupid. You know, stupidity is, is a real danger, isn't it? Yeah. I'll speak for myself. We get, uh, we get oblivious. We, we, we lose focus. We lose perspective. We make poor decisions. And you know what they say, that you make the, uh, decisions and the decisions make you. Um, and that's what happens here. For some bizarre reason, Jehoshaphat decides to marry into Ahab's family. Remember Ahab and Jezebel? The, the awful, wicked um, couple that, that ruled over the northern kingdom Israel? Jehoshaphat, for some reason, decides to marry into the family, presumably marry one of Ahab's daughters. And, um, and again, there are things, uh, you make decisions, and there are consequences to those decisions. In his case, um, his father-in-law invites him down, invites him down, remember that in, in, in Israel, uh, everything from Jerusalem is down. Regardless if you go north, south, east, or west, you're going down. So his father-in-law invites him down to Samaria, puts on a big bash, and says, Oh, by the way, would you join me to fight my, my enemy just up, up here uh, across from the Jordan? And, uh, and this is so much like us. I mean, the, the, this interchange, this is uh, uh, Chronicles 19 and uh, 18 and 19. And Jehoshaphat says, yeah, sure, yeah, you bet. And then he pauses for a minute, has, has a brain flash and says, oh, hang on a second. Uh, maybe we need to find out what, what God wants to do. And of course, for Ahab, this is like talking Chinese. 
um, they eventually get a, a prophet of God who says, um, if you want to go, go. Have a good time. But one of you guys is not going to come back. Specifically, Ahab, you're going to die there. And he does. And um, Jehoshaphat comes back home. And part of the picture, you know, this is the wonderful thing about being a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God. When you do something stupid, he doesn't let you stew forever, but he gets your attention and points out where you've been stupid. And I don't know about you. I want that. I want to learn from my mistakes. By the way, it's been said that we learn the best from our failures. Why? Because the failures are very deeply embedded on us, we, and it stays with us longer, and we learn from them. We can learn from them. And so the Lord sends a prophet who says to him, this is in 19.2, Yehu the, the seer said to Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. By the way, uh, your translation may have it just plain old generic angry. That's not the case. The Hebrew word there, ketzef, means God's fury that uh, Jehoshaphat, who had been so much on the money, goes off track. And then he continues, there is, this is 19.3, there is, however, some good in you, for you have, for you have rid the land of the Asherah poles, and you have set your heart on seeking God. Now, I don't know about you, but there is some good in you. It doesn't sound like a great affirmation. It's like, okay, um, that was real stupid, but, y you know, y you're like a diamond in the rough, in the very rough. So part of, of that piece of the story says to me that we all tend to make boneheaded decisions. Every single one of us. Right? And that God doesn't allow us to stew in our juices forever, but he finds ways to get our attention and says, I have a better way for you. And, and that was not too clever. Here is what I want you to do. And what's even better is that we're told that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Somehow we stand before God, he pours out his goodness, and, and we melt. We melt. And realize how unbelievably idiotic we were, and we are ashamed of ourselves, and we say, Lord, I don't want to go there. You're right. Of course you're right. And so God uses that um, to bring about change in our life, However, part of what we have to realize is that even then, if we had made some major life decisions, poor life decisions, the consequences stay with us even after we repent. There's still residue, leftover kinds of things, and that's exactly what happens with Jehoshaphat. By the way, his name, Jehoshaphat, means Jehoshaphat, God has judged. Um... So what we see at the end of his life that Jehoshaphat made an alliance with Ahab's son who was also guilty of wickedness and they entered into some kind of a um, agreement, trading partnership. They built ships together in, in the south, southern part of Israel and God sends another messenger and says to him, Jehoshaphat, um, that was not real bright. So you did something stupid. It's gonna it's gonna amount to nothing. And that's exactly what happens. Um, the ships that were built, all of them sink. All that to say, um, when we make important, significant life decisions, we want to make sure 
that we invite God into the picture, not as in, okay, God, what do you think? Good, all right. But as in God being the senior partner where we take sufficient time to sit down, to be quiet, and to wait until we hear from God and, and even sometimes until we get confirmation. In other words, okay, God, this wasn't last night's pizza, right? Yes. Because otherwise, folks, what happens, we make decisions, there are consequences, they bite us, and yes, God is bigger. However, part of our humanity is having followed a certain track. It requires additional help from God and additional focus and commitment for us to make sure that our noses are pointing in the right direction. Okay? So you have two poor choices in Jehoshaphat's life. He reigned for 25 years. You have one poor choice in the beginning, one poor choice at the end. And yet, somehow, this guy, in every other way, was right on the money. We saw how that he sent uh, people to teach. He, he, sent, he sent his officials and Levites and so on to teach the people the Torah. Then, then he also sends um, judges, and he says to the judges, this is also in chapter 19 here, um, consider carefully what you do because you're not judging for man but for the Lord who was with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be, with, be upon you. Judge carefully for the Lord our God there, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality. In other words, God is saying to them, um, you guys are going to judge and you've been given authority and authority from God is precious. Let me park here and, and, and take a bit of a tangent. You know, sometimes we, we see authority um, as, as something that... <clears throat> that is like the, the authority that we see in politics. Uh, you know, people push and shove and somehow they come to positions of power. A totally different paradigm, a totally different model of what how the kingdom of God operates because authority spiritually is delegated power from God, delegated power to accomplish specific things specific assignments that he gives us to do and it's precious and we cannot treat them lightly you know and, and over the years in ministry i've had some folks who have come to me and basically expected me to give authority as like tammany hall you know political favors and um at this point in my life, I say, you know, authority it comes from God, has to be given in God's way. And that's what you see with Jehoshaphat. Um, he gets rebuked. He takes a good, um, a good turn. And um, by sending the, um, the judges... Now, all of a sudden, you have this tsunami. You have these hundreds of thousands of enemies coming. So you say, okay, why? Well, God doesn't always tell us why. In fact, more often than not, God doesn't tell us why. And at some point, you learn to accept that part of walking with God is accepting his mystery. But here in, this, in, in these chapters, four chapters, you have some clues, and part of it is um, Jehoshaphat being in a position of great authority, great responsibility, having, uh, having blown it once, God, in a sense, is putting a test before him and says to him, okay, Jehoshaphat, how are you going to handle this? Um, are you going to handle things my way? 
Or are you going to do what you did before and have an alliance of the wrong kind with somebody else in order to deal with the problem? And here, where you, this is where you see Jehoshaphat shining. And, and I imagine that for a lot of us, this is a very familiar chapter. Um, this is an incredible chapter. You know, here you have um, a king, a man facing a massive crisis. And his response was not to sit down with his generals and try to figure out the best, the best way to head things off. In fact, as you read chapter 20, you see that very little space is given to any kind of military strategy. There's almost none. Most of this has to do with uh, spiritual issues. Um, so my conclusion is that this is part of God saying to Jehoshaphat, okay, Jehoshaphat, we're going to see where you are. Um, and it's not as if God really needs information about us, since the Lord knows everything about each one of us. Um, where, where Scripture says, search me, O God, and know my heart. In Psalm 139, it's not as if the Lord's saying, well, I'm really not sure what's in his brain. Let me put him into a, a situation that will bring that out. No, the Lord knows the tests are really for us, for God to expose what's in us so that we are able to see. And if we are off track, by the way, the, can everybody check their, their gizmos? <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, and, and just on the, count, on the count of three, turn it off, please. Um, that would be lovely. Okay. Um, that's part of it. God wants to, to show things about ourselves to ourselves. And he also judges. Again, remember that ironically... Jehoshaphat's name mean, means God has judged. What does that mean, that God judges? You know, we usually think of God's judgment as severe, you know, where, where God nukes people. Well, that is the case after people have been rebellious over and over and over and over again. But reality is for us who p have our noses pointing in God's direction... His judgment is not to destroy us. His judgment is simply to discipline us. And, and the Hebrew word for discipline, musar, has the notion of growing through the discipline, learning through the discipline, becoming more mature. I don't know about you. I want that. You know, I, I know that the word discipline is not exactly a word that conveys warm fuzzies to all of us. But scripturally, if we know and are convinced of the love of God, the tender love of God, His commitment to us, then we will know that His judgment is something that is meant for our good. And I, I believe here, the case, this, this was a case that God was judging testing and um, it was spectacular the results were spectacular yes Jehoshaphat is in a flight or fight fight or flight situation you know the adrenaline and heart pumping and so on but he does what each one of us is supposed to do we see in, in the very beginning of this chapter in, chap in verse 3 of chapter 20, Jehoshaphat finds out what's going on. He's afraid. Well, duh. Wouldn't you be afraid if you have a multitude coming to, to destroy you? Yeah, I would be. But you see, that's the difference. What does he do with the fear? That's the huge difference. Fear is normal and natural for us 
mean, it's part of our survival, in a sense. But the, the difference is, what do we do with it? Do we allow the fear to take control of us and manipulate us and, and drive us mishugi with, with more fight-or-flight kinds of uh, responses? Or do we say, God, I'm scared. Now, what are we going to do about it? That's exactly what Jehoshaphat does. He's afraid, and then he is resolved. He's committed. The, the Hebrew there is that he turns his face to seek God. Lord, we have a problem. What needs to happen? And knowing how Jehoshaphat prays, we also see the fact that in verse 3, he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. So however Jehoshaphat prays, it's not one of these, okay, God, got a problem, help me out, have a nice day. When Scripture speaks about turning your face to see God, to see God, it means that you make a commitment to sit there and wait on God and receive the kind of help that you need as long as it takes. Now, I realize all of us have life and situations and families and jobs and so on, so um, we don't have the ability to do that on an ongoing basis, but it, uh, when we have especially major crises, we put everything on hold and say, God, you and I are going to talk. Before we shift into all kinds of plans and strategies. And if we do that, then what happens is that our fear will be transformed and will become faith. Faith and fear are antidote. Or you can say that faith is an antidote to fear. And God doesn't expect us to go to the store and get five pounds of faith or to try and pump up the faith and huff and puff. God simply expects us to say, Lord, I want to believe, help my unbelief. I have tiny faith. Please make it bigger. The Lord loves to hear that kind of a prayer, folks. No shame in that. In fact, that's, that's what God wants. Because you're saying, God, I want to be able to trust you more, but I'm kind of retarded, so would you please help me? So Jehoshaphat invites the whole country. And interestingly enough, uh, unlike his papa and grandpa, as we've been seeing the last few weeks with Rabbi David uh, preaching on Asa, Asa, and Abiyah before him, where you had the country polluted and defiled by idol worship. Here at this point, the country is in better shape because Jehoshaphat has been, has been plowing the soil and, and making it receptive to the word of God. So when he issues a call for people to come and, and pray and worship and, uh, and fast, people do. And then Jehoshaphat stands in front of the people and he basically gives them a sermon. I don't know if you've read the prayer. This is one of the most astounding prayers in all of Scripture. But he's not saying, go team, go, people are coming to bite us and we're going to, we're tough, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out a way. No, this is all about God. It's all about God. We're not going to go into depth with it. I'd like to encourage you to take time to reread it and just let God speak to you. It's awesome. Just a couple of things in this prayer. First of all, in chapter 20, verse 6. He says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? That's a rhetorical question. Of course you are. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might 
are in your hand and no one can stand, no one can withstand you. So what what he's simply saying here is part of our sanity saver ideas and that God is always in control. Who like he say? Then he, he does this kind of mini historical review. Lord, um, you got rid of, of our other enemies because you were committed to Abraham. This is verse 7. And um, we built your house and part of the commitment between you and us was that when we would have trouble, we would scream to you and you would hear an act. This is verse 9. By the way, Shema, Hebrew word for Shema, always has the notion of hearing with intent to obey. So we're expecting, God, that you will hear and that you will act. Because we have no power and we have no clue what to do with these folks, with our enemies. But our eyes are upon you. So question I want to ask you today. Where are your eyes? Where are your eyes? Where's your focus? What direction is your nose pointed? Is it towards you, towards other people? Or do you have a basic expectation that you life, your life is in God's hands and that he is working, that he's in control, that he has a plan, that he has the power, and that you simply need to listen and to hear and to act on what he tells you. Now, part of the expectation, of course, is whether you believe that God can talk to you. Do you know that God can talk to you? I know sometimes I say that and people look back at me with glazed eyes, like, what is he talking about? Well, if God wired you, or since he wired you, does he not know how to communicate to you? So Jehoshaphat prays, and then some, some guy named uh, Ahaziel stands up and, and offers these awesome words, which we see, by the way, um, as Israel faced Pharaoh. Don't be afraid. Don't get discouraged. The battle is not yours, but God's. Who is the one who's doing the heavy lifting here? You or God? Tomorrow, march down against them. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Stand firm to see the deliverance of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you folks. This is the strangest um, military strategy I've ever read anywhere. You know? Here are the bad guys, you march towards them, and you do nothing. And you pray, and you sing, and you worship, and you dance, and you wait for God to act. Now that requires chutzpah, major chutzpah. And that's exactly what they did. They march out, and... Knowing, here's reality, folks. They knew, in essence, that if God didn't come through, they were marching to their death. Now, that's gutsy faith, folks. And so, um, what they put in front of the column that's coming to face their enemies is not the Marines or the Green Berets or the Delta team. What they put before them are the folks that sing and dance and worship God and lead them in worship. 
And as they do that, as they do that, not a minute before, as they do that, God kicks into action and basically unplugs the enemy's brains so that their enemies are totally brainless and they fight and kill each other. And so, of course, they spend three days going through the latest um, packages, uh, the Gucci's that the enemies has. They didn't have to have uh, Black Friday or it was all there. By the way, I, I don't know about you folks. This is kind of a weird thing here. But uh, instead of Thanksgiving, people talk about Turkey Day and, uh, and have the stores open the moment you're, you're done stuffing yourself. Okay. So they, uh, they're done collecting the loot. Verse 26. Let's park on that. Um, the fourth day, they assemble at the Valley of Bracha, the Valley of Praise, where they praise the Lord. Then led by Jehoshaphat, they return joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. Now, folks, none of this makes any sense. Think about it from a logical point of view. Here you are facing a tsunami, a massive crisis that's about to come, pouring over you, and basically putting you out of commission. And you don't sit there with, with, your, um, you know, with your iPad and, and trying to figure out all kinds of strategies. But instead you go talk to God and you wait for God to talk to you. And then you invite other people to pray with you. And then you go face the crisis... And you talk to God some more. And you worship and sing and dance. Again, from a human perspective, it makes absolutely no sense. But this is what God expects for you and I as his followers. Each one of us comes into crises from time to time. Fight or flight situations where... Everything in us bubbles over and we want to kick into action and uh, figure things out and fix them or call for somebody else to come and help us fix the situation. And at some point we get overwhelmed and say, God, help me. And somehow, in his mercy, he does but there's, there's really no joy in that, folks. Instead, instead, what we see here is God is in, engaged in every aspect of this crisis. From the beginning, when, when Jehoshaphat first finds out about it, to the time that, that he is waiting for instructions what to do, till the time he goes to confront the crisis, till the time when... The crisis is over, and, and he is looking good. And yes, you see in the life of this guy that he blew it, as is the case with all of us. None of us lead lives that are full of perfection because perfection exists in one place, not down here. And yes, we will blow it, but part of, the, part of the picture is not to say, am I being absolutely perfect, but simply to say, which way is my nose pointing? And as we do that, then, then we, we have the peace of God, the shalom from the Lord, to know how to walk in the path that he's prepared for us and see what he wants to do despite the difficult situations despite the crises and we grow into maturity in God in our relationship with him through these crisis situations but that depends on the choices that we make whether we want to 
invite God into every aspect of the situation or not. And it's been said that you sow a thought, you reap an act, you sow an act, you reap a habit, you sow a habit, you reap a lifestyle. There's a lifestyle, folks, of what it means to follow God in thick and thin. Requires our choice. Let's pray. Father God, we bless you and, and uh, give you thanks during this season, Lord, for how you walk with us through thick and thin. Lord, how you teach us, especially, Lord, through our failures. We bless your name, Lord, and thank you that you are an eminently patient teacher. Lord, that you don't cast us off, but Lord God, that your Ruach works with us and leads us into truth and softens our heart and brings about repentance. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the good work that you do in each of our lives. And we pray, Lord God, that we would have the discernment from you to see and understand, Lord God, what it is that you're doing and that we would learn to labor together with you, Lord, to collaborate with you, to be participant with the work that you want to do in us and through us. We pray, Lord God, that in all of that, that you would receive honor and glory in our lives, Lord. Speak to us, Lord, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.